Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Natureversity Podcast. Today, we have the honored guest of having Sarah Coles from the Texas Children in Nature Network here. And Sarah, thanks so much for being on. Uh, we just cannot wait to hear all about how... I know Texas Children in Nature Network is a big organization that's really responsible for getting a lot of families outside. And I just want to hear all about how we can get involved, uh, those of us listening. And I'm just excited to hear the story of the origins of the your, your tale and Texas Children in Na- uh, Nature Network. So take it away. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's an honor to be here today. I'm excited to talk a bit more about Texas Children and Nature Network and what we do and how folks can get involved. So excited to be here. Yeah. So for short, we're going to say T-C-I-N-N. Is that yep, cool? Yeah, that is great. T-C-I-N-N. What do y'all say at the office? T-C-I-N-N. T-C-I-N-N. Got it, no... is, it is a mouthful. Yeah. We, we don't always say Nature versus the Outdoor School either. We just say NOS. Okay. N-O-S, NOS. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, some, some of the teachers like to say Natty V which mm-hmm. I think is kind of funny because I guess it's an homage to Natty Light, the beer. I guess. I don't get it, but they say <laughs> Natty V. Um, anyway, so you, uh, your name, title, profession, so your Sarah Coles title, what's your title there at TCIN? So I am the executive director. Very so cool. So we are a small but mighty staff. There's five of us, and so uh, excited to be leading our work across the state and, and seeing where it goes. Very cool. Where were you born? How'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Alabama, mm-hmm. so um, a a town about halfway between Birmingham and Tuscaloosa uh, called Hoover. So if any of you are big high school football fans, you may have heard of Hoover, Alabama. We are a football powerhouse. That is about the end of our claim to fame. Um, my favorite story about them is I was listening to um, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me a couple of years ago, and someone called in and said, I'm from Hoover, Alabama. And they asked, where's that? And she goes, right where it's supposed to be. Uh-huh. And I was like, perfect. That is how I will always explain where I am from, from now on, is it, it's right where it's supposed to be. I like it. And so growing up, were you pretty urban or were, was it more wilderness? Did you have a lot of a combination? Yeah. Um, I grew up going to, um, parks and rec summer camp every summer. That was kind of my parents' childcare for, for me and my sisters in the summer. Um, and the camp I went to, we were rather feral, uh, which I love now looking back at it. I also having been a summer camp person, I'm like, that may not have been the best choice, but um, it was a lot of like eh, in two hours, just check in and then like, yeah, you can go. So I spent a lot of time in the summer just hanging out in parks, wandering around, crushing, catching crawdads, um, playing capture the flag, you know, all sorts of stuff. Um, and so I did that every summer until I was in high school, really. And then um, also my family, every summer we would go up to the Sierra Nevadas for a couple of weeks. And so it's beautiful up there. Yeah. Uh, that is probably really where I fell in love with nature was, was up in the high Sierra. So, yeah. Yeah. That's good. I'm, I'm a lot of families, uh, a lot of people who get to this work, they oftentimes have a story of like, man, well, once I was 18 or, you know, once I got out of high school, I got to a retreat and then it just like a light switch flicked on Mm -hmm. but it's good to hear the tales of the opposite of like I knew like you pretty much knew like where you you got into high school maybe and you you kept going to these summer camps and kept going to these programs so were your intentions I'm gonna get out of class and I'm gonna go no okay so so back up (laughs) what happened uh I loved spending time outside and actually I remember in high school I took environmental science one summer one semester and mostly because I needed another science credit and I was like ah that looks like I'm getting like that and chemistry let's take the easier class Ah, environmental science and I did really well in it but 
never thought that that was a career path for me. Like it was never encouraged. It was never like, and I did really well. And when I look at it now, it's like, my teachers really should have been like, I was a junior. Like they should have been like this, let's think about this as a career, but never. And, um, so I actually went to undergrad, um, intending to be a history teacher, went to graduate school, got my master's degree in curriculum instruction, a hundred percent. I was going to be a a U.S. history high school teacher. That was my intention. While I was there, um, in grad school, I started working at a museum just as a part-time job to, you know, help pay the bills and really learned about the idea of informal education while I was there. But again, it was a, this is my part-time job outside of class. This is my path. I'm going to be a high school teacher. I got to high school teaching and I was like, oh no, yeah, <laughs> this is not what I want to be doing. There are some amazing high school teachers. It just wasn't for me. It wasn't what my passion was. I loved education. I just didn't love being in the school system. So I went back to being in formal ed um, and got a job at a history museum in Miami that actually their focus was eco-history. And so that is the study of where we are and why we are there and then our impact on the environment as humans and the impact of the environment on us as humans. So like how have people and the environment evolved <laughs> together? That should just be called the study of life. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I did a lot of that and that meant I was out in nature a lot with kids um, through this job because I was working with a grant that took kids from Title I schools to nature centers all across South, Tech- South Florida. And so that's really where I figured out like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It took me a long time to get there. And I quickly realized like, oh, this is why I didn't like teaching in high school. Because <laughs> yeah. that's not where I was supposed to be. Did So you went to college for an opportunity to teach. Mm-hmm. But they never at all during that process of, was it four years, two years? I did four years of undergrad, two years of grad school. Yeah. During that, they never sent you into a high school with kids? I When I was student teaching was the first time really that I was... And is that the moment you were like, I don't want to do this? Uh, no, I I mean, I had a kind of a rough student teaching experience, but there was a lot of other stuff going on during that time. So I just thought like, oh, that's just like other stuff outside of school that's making an impact on this. And I taught for two years and um, it, I, I did love my students. I loved working with them. It was just the bureaucracy, which you don't see as a student teacher. You don't really see that background. Um, I didn't have a great principal at the school I was working at, which makes a huge difference. Yeah, leadership from the top. Yeah, and so um, I really, when I finished at that school, I went to my college's career counselor, and she he was like, so like if I gave you, because I was like, I don't know what to do. I just, I don't. I was in a 25 <laughs> mid-career crisis. <laughs> and, we all go through that, folks. Don't worry. <laughs> and he was like, so if I gave you a teaching job today, what would you do? And I just stared at him blankly. And he's like, okay, that's our answer. We're not going to do this anymore. And I was like, oh, okay. I No one had ever told me that that was an option. I thought that like my when I was 18, I told you what my career was. And that's where we went. Um, and he's like, no, you can make a decision at any point. Any point. And I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anyone out there listening to this, did you hear what Sarah just said? At any point, you can stop 
and you can start over. Mm-hmm. Because so many, have you ever seen that movie Up in the Air? Yeah. Where like he's letting those people go and he's like, I'm not letting you go so much as I'm giving you an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I thought that was so beautiful because it sounds like you are sharing a story of what I talk about on this podcast all the time, which is called Ikigai. You ever heard of that? Mm-mm. Ikigai is like four circles of a Venn diagram coming mm-hmm. together. And on all four circles, there's that which you're good at, that which you have passion for, that which the world needs, and finally, that which you can be paid for. Mm-hmm. And so that's your Zen purpose for being. Mm-hmm. It's a Japanese word, Ikigai, or your purpose for life. And that's what I'm trying to get kids at Natureversity to do all the time. And it sounds like you've gotten that. You know, you've gotten this nice little balance of where you want to be. But at any point in life... You can stop if you feel you do not have your icky guide. You can go reevaluate. Mm-hmm. So you get out. Um, you're now down in Florida. Mm-hmm. And what were those opportunities that you were kind of leading down there? What did they look like? Yeah. One of the biggest programs I worked with was called the Historic Site Visits Program. And it was a three-visit program. So the first visit, the museum I worked at, the kids would come to the museum. And we would do your kind of usual museum field trip, but kind of more guided. Um, And the students did a lot of documenting in terms of photos and drawing and journaling through the process. And then I took them out into nature as visit two. Um, So we would do, we would go to the Everglades. We'd go to Biscayne uh, State Park. We'd go, you know, all over Florida and South Florida just has some really fantastic environments that are very unique compared to the rest of the country. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, I that is really where I just fell in love with nature as an adult. Um, And so uh, I would take them out and we would spend the whole day outside um, experience like exploring. I had kids that were from North Miami, which is a a very impoverished part of town. Um, A lot of refugees are, are settled there. And I had kids that had never seen the ocean before. And I'm thinking you're in Miami. Like if I ask anyone else outside of this country, what's the first thing you think of for Miami? They're going to say the beach. Mm-hmm. Like that's what you think of. And I was taking kids to the see the ocean for the first time wow. because they'd never left their neighborhood just because that's the experience they had. Yeah. And so it really kind of opened my eyes to the idea of inequitable access to nature. Yeah. Like these kids just, their neighborhood hadn't been invested in. And so they didn't have those opportunities. Um, and so that's kind of where that, kind of started for me. And so I would take them on that, that trip. And then mm-hmm. that third visit, I actually went to the schools um, and we put together at that time, this was early 2000. So not as much uh, early, about 2010 to 2012, not as much digital footprint as we have now. So we would do actual paper books that they would put together about their experience. And then like a scrapbook. Yeah. Like, a like scrapbook. we did in high school. Yeah. I remember doing that. I see. And then year. At the end of the year, all the schools that we worked with, we would put together um, a showing of what they did. So the kids got to come and see, like, as a museum showing the work that they did. Oh, yeah. that's beautiful. So did you notice the, I don't know, again, not going back to that analogy of the light switch flicking on for these kids. Did you notice when they got to the beach, like, there was just something different about them? Did they feel, like, did they sense, like, did they perceive, like, because, man, when I take kids, especially for ones, they've told me, I've never Mm -hmm. camped. I've never camped under the stars. Mm -hmm. And they just told me, like, I never don't want to do this again. So was it just a, how do I now, the the question within them, how do I now get back out there and make this a part of my life? Did you see that activate, or was they got home where they kind of just like, oh, that was cool? 
For some of the kids, definitely. Um, We tried to find ways to engage with the students multiple times beyond the three visits. Um, I had several schools that I worked with pretty exclusively. And so I would try to get those teachers to do not just those three visits, but maybe a few times per year I was going out to see them. Um, Also, we also tried to, especially for our high school students that we worked with, we had a teen program at the museum. So we tried to really recruit those teens to join our teen program so that they were having more connection with us further on. And so for that, we really did try to have multiple touches with those kids. And then also I would find kind of uniquely with this program, the first time we were all inside. And, you know, having taught high school and so on, I kind Mm -hmm. of knew a little bit classroom management. Like I could kind of, you know, see, I was like, okay, that kid can't sit next to that kid. And, you know, Mm -hmm. you kind of start figuring, feeling that out. Um, and then we would get outside and everything would change. Like the kids that had been a challenge inside the museum were now my buddy that were like, oh, I know I can do that. I can do that. Um, and so definitely saw an impact that way. Yeah. I always just tell the staff here, you know, I said, kids just want to be seen. They want to be heard. They Mm want to be valued. That's like our universal underlying I don't know, golden rule, if you will, for all kids at Natureversity. So when we see them acting out or doing things that we don't necessarily approve of, we're just like, well, something's going on and they are exhibiting that behavior, you know, for, so, so that's where we come and try to say, Hey, this is an unhealthy expression of this feeling. This feeling Mm -hmm. you have is not wrong, but Mm -hmm. the way you're letting everybody know you're feeling that way, like we could do better there. And so we use that we use nature to help them understand that Mm -hmm. and man does it work. So yeah, I'm just so curious if you have more stories similar of just kids you've seen that you're like, wow, I was worried at first and perhaps now I'm not so much because they found something within themselves that they can use as a foundation to stand on and say, Hey, you know, no one can take this away from me. This is my wisdom. This is my experience. And I'm going to go out and do something with this because we've had so many teenage boys who mm-hmm. just, I was worried. And now they're like our role models for our little five and six-year-olds. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, I think one story that comes to mind is actually from after I got to Texas, I worked at a museum that we had summer interns. And my first summer, we we interviewed three three summer interns. And two of them, we were like, great, come on board. And the third one, we were like, ah, but he needs us. Like, we don't maybe necessarily need him as an intern, but he needs us. Ah, I love that you saw that. And That's so beautiful. we were like, okay, we're going to accept that, that intern. And he stayed with us the entire time I was at the museum. And I saw him just blossom. Yeah. Um, went from being an intern to being an employee. Um, you know, really like loved that institution was very invested and, I mean, he had adults investing in him every day uh, from his internship. And, like, even after a summer internship, he's like, well, can I stay as a volunteer in the fall? I was like, perfect. Yep, you can stay. (laughs) And um, to the point where, like, I still, like, the other day he messaged me with, like, pictures of his hike. And he was like, I just wanted to share this cool hike I went on. I was like, I love that you are still so, like, I haven't been at that museum for five years. But he is still like but you're my people and I'm gonna share because we he his life is so different from what it was when he came in as an 18 year old 
Yeah. Like, it's like, well, uh, my professor says I need to have an internship. This looked like maybe it would be interesting. I, I don't know. <laughs> I've heard that from a lot of the UT <laughs> students. I actually had a film uh, student come and she's like, I just had to pick something to film and I just filmed your school. I thought mm-hmm. it'd be cool. And she was like, this changed my life. Mm-hmm. She's like, this actually changed all the students' lives in the classroom too when they watched my documentary. I was like, whoa. So this, I mean, again, I feel like we're just so... I don't know what to say. How do I describe this? It's like we're holding a closet full that's just wanting to explode. And we're just standing there our whole lives just like pushing this. And what I'm talking about that's in the closet that's trying to get out is this nature connection, Mm -hmm. you know. And for whatever reason, I think we're snakes, poison ivy, Mm -hmm. mosquitoes, ants, whatever the thing that is your barrier you know, my, I just got done doing my wilderness first aid, uh, recertification this weekend. And, um, the guy was like, you can just have so many fun tickets when you're outside, then it's just time to go home. And I always tell the kids, I was like, that's an interesting way to think about it. But I tell the kids, you can, you have to pay for things to have fun. So some Mm -hmm. of the paying is annoying mosquitoes, Mm -hmm. you know, but if you can bypass that to be out at a beautiful Canyon Lake area, you know, to enjoy diving, to enjoy swimming and seeing things with goggles that you haven't seen before. And that's just what I want people um, who are listening to this to just get outside. And even if it's in your own backyard, even if you live in an apartment, just go for a walk along the side and um, um, to local park if that's a, an opportunity mm-hmm. for you. But get out there. Do you, are you familiar with sit spots? You ever heard of that? I am. Yeah. yeah. When's the first time you did a sit spot? Oh, the first time I did a sit spot. Um I, well, officially did one. I'm sure I did them as a kid and just didn't really realize I was doing a sit spot. When when we would go up to the Sierras, I would sit at the end of the dock at the lake that we always were at and just would like hang out there for hours doing a sit spot, not knowing I was doing a sit yeah. spot. Um, but when I worked at the Noesis Delta Preserve in Corpus, um, I would uh, do sit spots with kids there all the time. Um, and really my favorite was when I would get them to do sound mapping as part of their sit spot. Um, oh. and that was really fun. Yeah. Kind of like hearing the, mm, like birds and just different mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I got yeah. So you, now. you, you sit and you kind of make a, a square on a piece of paper and you put an X in the middle and that's you. And then you map out everything you hear around you 360 degrees. Yeah. And so you really think about like, okay, there's the bird, but then there's a mosquito over here. And it kind of makes you focus on what's happening all around you. And you do it with your eyes closed. So you're not being distracted by what you're seeing. Right. Yeah. That's a a interesting way to do a sit spot. I've, whenever I had trouble getting the kids to do a sit spot, I would always play this game with them called Eagle Eye. You ever mm-hmm. heard this game? It's basically you just like sit in this little circle and then the kids just go hide. And then you act like an eagle who's trying to spot the field mice. But you just sit there and just don't see them and don't call them out. Mm-hmm. But then afterwards, you know, the game's over. We call them back in. I'm like, did anybody see anything weird while sitting there for so long? And they just have stories. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what if we just did that? What if we just sit out in the woods? And they were okay with it after that. But at first, yeah. when I tried to the day before the group, I'd be like, do you want to just go sit in the woods? They're like, what? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think sometimes it's all about how we um, offer the opportunity to the kids. And what other things are you familiar with as far as outdoor like connection tools and resources? Like what are some of the things that you've been picking up over the years, sit spots? Do y'all do any like nature journaling? Or? Uh, yeah, definitely do some nature journaling. Um, I also have really the last few years been really become interested in the in forest bathing. 
Oh, tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, forest bathing is a direct translation from uh, what it means in Japanese. It's a Japanese um, therapy tool that came over to the U.S. a few years ago. Um, And so direct translation is forest bathing. But it's basically you go out and you use the forest as your therapy tool. Um, And so there are certified nature forest therapy guides uh, that have been trained in this. And they take you out and you do five invitations throughout the course of about a two, two and a half hour period. And um, with that, like some of them is like, okay, for the next 20 minutes, we're just going to sit here. So it's all kind of based on sit spots. We're going to sit here and we're going to look for things that are small. And so you just look around you and look for like, what's the small things that you're seeing? Is it little bugs? Is it how the wind is moving the grasses right around you? Like, what are the small things? And then there'll be one, like, what are you hearing? What are you smelling? What do you feel? Um, So just various that are very intentional invitations to really get you grounded and really kind of self-regulation through that process. And I have done it a few times now, like with, with partners of ours that have been leading workshops and I've been kind of there as the helper, but getting to do the forest bathing myself through the process and really have seen some amazing kind of revelations come, especially when you're doing it with like middle and high schoolers. It is a time that they often, they're so busy, they don't have that time to just sit and to just be within themselves. Like I was doing one this last fall with one of our uh, partners out in Houston, um, and we were doing it with a bunch of volunteers, like 13 volunteers at this park. They they were doing a day that they were going to get to do some forest bathing. And one of the girls was like, well, I come out here, but I'm really terrified of bugs. Like uh. I come out here, but like that that's probably my biggest fear when we're out here is like, I'll, I'll do the invasives removal. I'll do the trash pickup because I really feel strongly about like keeping the park clean. She's like, I, I want it to be clean when I come out. She's like, but the, the bugs terrify me. And she goes, and I was in our sit spot and this bee came and just like landed on my mm. mat. And she was like, I wanted to run away. She's like, but I just sat there with it. And she's like, I sat there for the full 20 minutes with it. And she's like, and I realized that I could sit there with it, like that I didn't need to run away, that nothing was going to happen to me. I could just sit there. And she's just like bawling. She's telling us this. And I'm like, oh, the forest jits thing. Yeah, the forest bathed you. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it does. It really like, I, I in, in the way the bathing, like it cleanses our fears. Mm-hmm. But we have to, I feel we, we have to be the ones to be able to have the discipline to have the patience to mm-hmm. kind of um, utilize everything around us to kind of hone this understanding of like, why am I afraid? And really, is there any, I always say there's like perceived and then real, right? Like, oh, all snakes are dangerous. Well, that's a perceived threat. But pit vipers are dangerous. Okay, that's a real threat. So right. I think we oftentimes stem into this perceived, mm-hmm. even though there's not really... Well, and, you know, what the volunteer coordinators at that park had done, you know, all the work up to that point, and then what the forest bathing leader had been doing was really creating a safe space where that student knew, like, okay, they wouldn't put me in this situation if it was dangerous. Right. Like, she trusted the staff and the leaders enough. Like, they had built that trust so that she was able to then face her fear in a safe space. 
So, and she also knew, like, she's like, I knew if I got up, like, that would be okay. Like, I wasn't going to get in trouble. Like, if I got up and I moved, so she's like, I just told myself, like, okay, we're going to sit here for it. And if I have to get up, I'll get up and that'll be okay. But I was able to sit there. Yeah. And, you know, she didn't say, you know, to me, like, that's because I was safe. But I knew, like, from her explaining to me, it's because she did feel safe with the people who were there. Right. Yeah. Facilitators are such a huge part because if you just toss somebody (laughs) out into the woods, Mm -hmm. I definitely know that it can turn people off fast. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had visit days at Natureversity and kids come in. And I think sometimes the other kids who are so comfortable out there, like slinging mud and algae Mm -hmm. at each other. And then the kid who's brand new just gets caught in that crossfire. And it's like, I don't know about all this, you know. So, yeah, definitely got an easier way in to nature connection. So can you, um, now that we've got a little bit of background on how you got to TCINN, can you tell us a little bit more about its you know, mis- vision, uh, mission, values? Like how did it begin? What's the history and the inception and all that? Sorry, that was a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Texas Children and Nature Network uh, started officially in 2010, but in uh, 2009 with the t- uh, Texas Legislature Biennium, a bipartisan uh, group got together and brought up that there was a, a problem with kids not spending enough time outside um, for a variety of reasons that this came up. And so uh, that group charged several state agencies to get together and kind of think about that. Like, what does that mean? Um, and so Texas Parks and Wildlife, Texas Education Association, AgriLife, Department of State Health Services, Um, and a few others that now I can't remember off the top of my head, but got together and really thought through like, okay, what, what does it mean for kids to spend time outside? And through that, a a group of leaders from across the state who are really interested in getting kids outdoors was formed. And that was the very first Texas Children and Nature Network. And it was formed and housed under Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. Um, There were a few kind of nature heroes that started the work, uh, one being Nancy Heron, who was Uh, in the education and uh, outreach department at Texas Parks and Wildlife and is is a true hero uh, in our in our state in terms of getting kids outdoors and then from her it uh, became Jennifer Bristol's uh, little baby uh, growing it across the state and she did fantastic work of growing it across the state really working to create our regional collaboratives so we have uh, regional collaboratives across the state now we have nine that are really those local nexuses for the work happening. Um, and so that's how actually I got involved with Texas Children and Nature Network. Um, in 2013, I moved to Corpus Christi. And on my second day, my boss told me, we've been invited to this meeting. Um, wh- why don't you go? And it was one of the first meetings of Texas Children and Nature Network for the region <laughs> down there. And I walked in and I met my people. Oh, like yeah. I walked in and I went, these, this is it. These are the people I want to be with. So I immediately joined uh, the regional collaborative down there and uh, eventually became regional leader and, and worked down there. And then in 2019, when the executive director position became available, um, I applied then. But really, I'm walking on the shoulders of, of our heroes that went before. Sure. So this yeah. is a paid thing. This is like your full-time job. Mm-hmm. You're, yeah. So you were working in Corpus uh, for a museum or mm-hmm. an aquarium? For a museum. Yeah. Um, and then I switched to working for the uh, 
Nueces Delta Preserve, which is part of Coastal Bend Basin Estuaries Program, which is a, a large nonprofit down there that's really focused on conservation. And from there, I, I moved up here to become the executive director of TCINN. Wow. Sarah, you're amazing. Did anybody ever tell you that? No. I think I think I'm just sitting here listening to all this. I'm like, man, she is just all over the place. And that's so wonderful because it's taking your passions and just sharing them with so many people who, and I know it's kind of, have you ever heard of the hundredth monkey syndrome? You ever heard mm-hmm. of that? I don't know if it's real, but a lot of people talk about it. They say basically as you walk around with this new state of, I really love nature. Like it's, you can't bump into people without them kind of being like, hmm, something's calling me to go tubing this weekend or something, mm. you know, like there's basically this, this reaction as you begin bumping into people, regardless of whatever you're doing, that they suddenly just know, like there's more of a desire. So I love hearing people who are so passionate, just tell me, yeah, I've been everywhere. So it's, it's bleeding out into, um, our humanity to become animal. That's what I always tell people that we wouldn't want to become animal. We want to get out there and dig into soil with our fingers. And that's actually a good question now that I just say that. Does TCIN have anything in these programs that you offer around Leave No Trace? Yeah, we definitely promote Leave No Trace. Um, yeah. We really want kids to love the environment because we know that kids who learn to love the environment as kids will then become the stewards of the environment Correct. as they grow older. And part of that is is teaching the theories of leave no trace, um, teaching the idea of of leaving it better than you found it, yeah. um, and and really thinking through like, okay, like what's the impact that we're having on this environment? But also knowing like for a lot of kids, this is a brand new territory for them. So it's also maybe we aren't jumping directly into leave no trace, right? That's but we was. are jumping into. Okay, this this is a space that is for you to connect with the natural world and really connect with who we are as humans because we are evolved to connect with nature. Like our minds need it. Our, like when you look at studies, our blood pressure goes down, our heart rate goes down. Like there's actually uh, phytosins within the leaves that that chemical actually helps relax us. Like it's chemical. It's not just like, Oh, I think I feel, but no, like biologically it is true we there's data there's data yeah and so um so this place is for you to connect with the earth but that means we also need to respect it and we need to care for it and as a five-year-old that might mean that we put our trash in the trash can when we're done and that's might be the extent of the lesson is starting with that and then we can kind of move forward um, from there. Yeah. I think what, it, what I was getting at was I've partnered with a lot of organizations, but then, uh, they kind of discover like, oh my gosh, these people are, you know, they're going out and like, we, we, we do a lot of, uh, clearing trails to Texas Ridge Runners, mm-hmm. um, REI, Austin Parks, and we take down invasive plants, quote unquote mm-hmm. invasive, right? I just like to say they're really opportunistic, but we, have access to that. So I think when some people come inside and, you know, they see us taking down some of the invasive plants, they're just like, oh my gosh, you know, but the reason we're doing that is because we're trying to teach the kids, look, the perception of these plants is that they're just invasive and they need to go away. But I don't like that. 
I think they're a beautiful being. I think their bark has a purpose. Their wood has a purpose. Their leaves have a purpose. So we're trying to get them to perceive these things that have been deemed inferior or whatever, that they have value still. So when we go out and we're taking off some of the limbs and we're using them to carve hiking sticks, a lot of places have just been like, whoa, like you're like decimating the woods, but we're really caretaking by getting the invasives out of there. Mm -hmm. So I was just curious about y'all's perception and how when y'all offer these programs we partnered with like the uh, west cave preserve one time and they wouldn't even let our kids like move off the trail to like kind of go explore and i was like oh no like i it's it's hard to really see nature when you're told stay on this line Mm -hmm. and experience it from this point and so i'm curious just about tcin and how y'all facilitate that deep rich experience um are y'all allowing kids in your program to just go out obviously not destroying the place but you know it really engaging it and picking up rocks and you know sticks and leaves and all that stuff have y'all yeah i think it depends on the location um oh sure yeah we definitely uh respect the rules of wherever it is Mm. what we are uh and that is part of the leave no trace that we we teach the kids is like like there's caretakers of this land and we need to respect what what they've put in place for us. Yeah. Um, I respect that. But also like uh, speaking of invasives, I like to explain invasives through like, you know, every creature needs, you know, air, uh, water, food, shelter to survive. In in some respect, we need those, those four things to survive. So what invasives do is when they come in, they're taking something away from the plants and animals that are supposed to be here. They're taking that away. And that's what's, causing them to be an issue for the environment. Right. It's because they're throwing off that balance. And so what we're trying to do is restore that balance. So it's not necessarily that this creature or this plant is bad. It's that we're restoring the balance that's supposed to be here. Um, Because in an ideal world, everything in that environment is balanced and will be working together. And so like use fire ants as an example. When the fire ants come in, they're taking away the, they're attacking the carpenter ants. And then that's taking a food source away from the horned lizards, which then is a food source for the birds. So like it's having a, a domino effect. Yeah. Very, so. very, uh, we call them the concentric ring effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's a very important point. So, um, and the types of programs that y'all are offering at TCIN, is it mainly you all facilitating the programs or is it you partnering with organizations who then have more maybe uh, access to the land and access to the resources as far as like bunk houses? Like do you, what type of programs are they? Are they overnights, expeditions, so day? We actually don't do a ton of direct service ourselves. Okay. Um, so we work with our partner organizations that do a lot of that work. And we are what we call a collective impact organization, which means we are, our goal is to get more children and families outside. That is our overall goal. Um, And we do that because we know that children who play and learn outdoors are healthier, happier, and perform better in school. And so we do our work through our partner organizations, through looking at their mission statement. How are they getting kids outside through their mission how can we support that? So ah. Now, is it only nonprofits that you're partnering with? We'll work with anyone who wants to get kids outside. So Natureversity could, could qualify. Definitely. All yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that is my only rule for participation is you want to get kids outside. If your goal is more kids to play, 
video games in their basement. We might not be the organization yeah. for you. Uh, but other than that, we're, we, we work with schools. We work with nonprofits. We work with health departments. We work with private families who it's just like a mom in the neighborhood. He's like, I just feel like my, the kids in my neighborhood need to get outside. Yeah. Uh, we work with the gamut. Awesome. Um, and so we work with, we have over 700 partners across the state. And so we do a lot of resource sharing. So part of that is we offer webinars every month uh, that are great resources for our partners. Um, and then we also have a conference every year that is a big resource sharing. Yeah. Tell us about that conference because that's one of y'all's biggest events each year. It is. Yeah. So we have our annual summit every year. Um, this year we're going to be in Houston. Uh, December 6th through 8th. So go ahead and put that on y'all's calendars now. And it is an opportunity where our partners come and we have some really dynamic keynote speakers come in, but then also they're learning from each other. So we have lots of concurrent sessions going on where the partners share what work they've been doing over the last year that really kind of inspires the work across the state. If we see that there's something that's like really like you've, you've started something new, we'll tap someone and be like, I really think you need to talk about this. We really want you to talk about this. We also last year made a big change to our conference. We added um, on the Wednesday of our conference field trips. So we realized that we were a nature organization spending our whole conference <laughs> indoors. <laughs> That's, it happens. Yeah. And so we were like, well, that doesn't make any sense. And so now the, the first day of the conference, uh, whatever city we're in, we move across the state every year. And so whatever city we're in, we tap partners in that city that are doing great work. And we have them do a field trip. And so everyone who registers for the conference goes on a field trip. It's not optional. It's just included with your registration. Wow. Does it take a lot of buses or people just drive themselves there? Uh, last year, we provided vans. Um, this year, we're, since we're in Houston, we are putting a big emphasis on stuff that is walkable or public transportationable <laughs> from our hotel. We have sure. a couple of charter buses that were field trips that we just felt really strongly that we needed people to see that were a little further away. But for the most part, everything is easily accessible either by foot or by public transportation. And then also we're partnering with the Parks Department to have a fleet of bicycles. Oh, cool. So there'll also be some bicycles available for folks to, to ride to their, their field trip. Um, and so that happens on the Wednesday. And so we'll have 12 field trips and you register for your field trip. And they are by far everyone's favorite thing. Like throughout the whole conference, everyone was talking about their field trip that they went on. And uh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. You start to figure that out. I did a thing up in Montana and it was like a botany kind of what you're talking about but oh. this guy that's what I thought it was going to be I thought we were just going to be out in the field the whole time but he actually took us on field trips to like horticulture specialists this one guy in Montana had like a whole I don't know how to explain it it was like the side of his house just went down and the light came in and the whole bottom part was like trees and peaches and just mm -hmm. all these things and I learned so much but it was the field trip portion that I mm -hmm. really told him I was like that was what made this thing man because getting to go around and just see all this other stuff was so unique well that's exciting are you allowed to tell us anything more maybe that you have planned or is it a little yeah. bit so our keynotes this year are uh, dr melissa lem who is with uh, campana canada's park prescription program so if you haven't heard in canada you can get a prescription from your doctor for a national park pass no yeah what? yeah so you hold can on get 
a national park. Are you pass, serious? Yeah, as a prescription. <laughs> that's the that's the remedy. Yep. How do they not have that here? We have more national parks, don't we? We do. It is. <laughs> and it is something that like, actually, I, we've been talking to lots of park agencies and so on about would love to see that come down here and definitely have are working towards that. There are doctors who do already write uh, nature prescriptions here in the States um, where it's like we see this a lot with um, ADHD and um, other mental health uh, issues where doctors will say, I need you to spend 30 minutes a day, three times a week outside. Wow. That is your prescription to go and do that. I had no idea. Yeah. That makes me feel so good because my perception of a lot of the stuff is that they're just writing prescriptions so that they can make money, you know? So now that I hear that, I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, okay. So there's just a tide changing, a tide Mm -hmm. turning a little bit. Yeah, we're actually working with some professors out of uh, Texas A&M that that is their kind of their main focus of a lot of their research is that kind of nature prescription program. Yeah. I really think it's disconnection is going to cause further trauma, I would imagine. You don't feel as valuable, but Mm -hmm. when you're, it's like a what do they say ego like this and then mm-hmm. eco like you're a part mm-hmm. of it and and with that like you can kind of sense where you're at and you mm-hmm. feel bad about it but with this it's like oh I'm just part of the whole yeah you know and it feels beautiful yeah so oh that makes me feel so happy Sarah to hear that I did not even know that that was mm-hmm. t- uh, taking yeah. place in Canada so sh- so should the Canadian organization will be there uh, yeah, so she, she'll she be presenting about her program. She's a, a general practitioner, so she's she's a, a doctor who has the medical expertise and also is helping run this program, and so talking about some of the logistics of it as well. And then our other keynote is Parker McMillan Bushman. Uh, she is the current president of the National Interpretation Association, which is, uh, for any of you who's not familiar, it's not um, – language interpretation yeah it is like field interpretation field interpretation yeah. so you're going out and you're you're telling the story of the land and, and of the place uh, so she's the current president of that and she's also writing uh, an inclusivity guide to the outdoors right now sure uh, and so she's gonna be talking about kind of the importance of access and inclusion in the outdoors yeah so we're really excited to have uh, her as our other keynote and then we our, our request for session proposals is open right now so I've been talking to folks as they've been telling me what they're interested in proposing, and some of them are fantastic. I think we're going to have the same problem we have every year, which is we have too many good proposals and not enough space to fit them all, Yeah, uh, which is a good problem to have. Uh, so we're really excited about that. And then some of the Wednesday field trips that we have scheduled already are going to be, uh, one is with Texas Outdoor Families, which is a program out of Texas Parks and Wildlife where they take families out camping in the state parks. So they're going to be doing a Wednesday workshop. We've got um, Adam Bienenstock with Bienenstock Playgrounds is going to be helping present one of our workshops at a nature-based school that we work with in Houston. Um, that same school is going to be doing another workshop on a free forest school um, and that concept of using the forest as the school grounds. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've got um, the PBK, which is the biggest school architect across the state of Texas. Like if... Any school probably was designed by PBK. Uh, They do a lot of the schools across the state. They've been working with the Nature Conservancy in Houston to build a brand new type of school where the the Nature Conservancy actually created a prairie and they put the school in the prairie. And the idea is that the school is part of that prairie complex and the students are going to be able to use that prairie every day. Yeah. And it's not just like a small school ground. It is a giant 
prairie that they're going to be engaged with. So they're going to be doing, that's one of our field trips that we felt like we needed to have a bus to go out to that school. Um, Because it's one thing to hear like about it and look at PowerPoint slides. It's another thing to get out there and and really experience it. It's totally different. Uh, Yeah. So those are some of the things that we have coming up as our field trips this year. Well, that's exciting. So people who would be most interested in attending a summit like this, Mm -hmm. who do you think those folks would be? Um, Yeah, we have a pretty broad range. Um, Probably the majority of folks are in environmental education, but every year that there are lots of other types of sectors that are joining. Um, So we have lots of folks from parks and rec departments, libraries, city government, a lot of health folks come. Um, We even have uh, private landowners that are really interested in how they can get kids out on their land. Uh, They come. We have even families, uh, you know, a parent that's like, well, I just want to know more about what's going on. Um, Yeah, that's me. I'm like, I just want to know more about what's going on. I actually have signed up for the event twice and then had a conflict on the day. So a couple of friends have told me, they're like, yeah, I saw your name badge up there. Where were you? I was like, I missed it. And then I sponsored it last year, I believe. Uh, Just a small sponsorship Mm -hmm. because I love what y'all do. And I've been aware of it for many years. And um, I'm probably going to go this. So December 6th, 7th, 8th. Yeah. You'll see yeah. me there this year, Sarah. Definitely. You should be there. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to it. I'll be there. Yeah. I, yeah. I was one of our teachers last year was like, I can't go. And I had to fill in for them. So, mm-hmm. um, well, this is exciting. And so how do, do these partners find you or do you find them? A combination of the two. Yeah. Um, so for instance, um, we work really closely with Texas Parks and Wildlife still, even though we're no longer a part of the agency, we we were incubated for 10 years under Texas Parks and Wildlife and then became an independent nonprofit. Um, but we still work with them very closely. They're yeah. uh, considered a founding partner of us, of our work. And so um, I work with their co-op grant team. So co-op is a grant where they uh, give money to community organizations to really get folks into the state parks and to be working with Texas Parks and Wildlife that maybe is an audience that they don't traditionally find at the yeah. parks. And so I work with them. And so one of the things I do every year is reach out to all of the grantees for the co-op grant and really talk about, hey, this is what we do. This is how we would love to have you a part of our work. We're here to offer you resources. We're here to be a help in your work. Not necessarily. We don't want a ton of stuff from you. We want you to continue doing what you're doing and getting kids outside. We're here to help you do that work. And so part of that outreach is things like that where I'm reaching out to folks. And then also like, you talked about the Austin Ridge Riders a little bit ago. I, I had them just contact me out of the blue and say, hey, we'd love to partner. And so, yeah, you know, so it kind of goes both ways. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I'm curious how uh, an organization like Natureversity, like let's just say there's n- other nature schools. Mm-hmm. What in what does the partnership look like? Yeah. So um, the first step is filling out our partner form, which mm-hmm. is very easy. I tell folks the hardest part is re- remembering to upload your logo file. It's the Google <laughs> form. <laughs> um, it's pretty easy. So you, you fill out that and then, you know, I will usually hop on a call um, myself or one of our other staff members across the state. I'll hop on a call and talk through like, okay, what are you doing? Like, what are some things you have coming up in the next year? Um, we really want to highlight the work that you do because we also, all of us on the staff have kind of like this mental Rolodex of who, what everyone's doing and who's doing what, kind of thinking through that all the time. And then also ask, like, what are resources you're looking for? Is there something that we already have that I can provide you a resource with? Or is it something that we haven't 
thought of before that needs to be a resource that maybe we need to start thinking about, okay, maybe we need to create a resource on this. And I get both all the time when I'm doing those calls. And then from there, uh, when you're a partner, you we have our, our webinars that you're always welcome to participate in in our summit. Then also we have um, technical advice visits. And so that's where I will have office hours. So, you know, you can always join. It's an, a virtual office hours. I just open up the Zoom room and hang People out. Just jump in? Yeah. Whoa, cool. Yeah. And so, um, and that started in a meeting where we had a Zoom meeting. It was early 2021. And so I was like, well, before we start, I have a question. I was like, sure, you know, whatever. And she's like, well, we're looking for a grant for this. And so we spent about five minutes just kind of brainstorming through a grant. And I was like, you know, I bet there are lots of partners that have questions like that that are just don't want to bug us yeah. in essence. Oh, yeah, me like, too. You know, like, oh, I'm already going to be on a call. I'll ask my question, but may not think I'll cop on the phone or I'll email. And so I was like, well, maybe if I just like make it open, like just like a professor's office hours. Like, Camp, campfire chats. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we do that. And then also like always willing to hop on a call or even visit. Um, partners. I'll go out and visit partners as well. Sometimes it's like I've been partnering with the Girl Scouts of Northeast Texas over the last couple of years. They've been totally redoing their kind of outdoor plan Mm -hmm. for all of their camps. And so I've been kind of going back and forth for a few times to visit them, kind of see what they're doing and giving um, kind of advice through that process as well, just based on everything I know. And then also back to that mental Rolodex. When I have a partner that says, hey, we're looking for this. Well, maybe it's not a resource I have, Ah. but this other group does. And I do a lot of connector emails. Like, hey, you need to meet this person. Y'all are both thinking about the same thing. Think about it together. Yeah, that's beautiful. So So, uh, is there any partner or any organization that you're aware of that has like, uh, cause that's what Natureversity is focused on. We're focused on like primitive skills, survival, like really in a nutshell, what I tell families is we're teaching your kids to do dangerous things safely. So we're trying to get them to carve with knives. We're trying to get them to make fires. We're trying to get them to build forts and purify water. They're not obviously like consuming massive quantities of this stuff after they do so, but we want them to understand the pragmatic application to how this is done. You know, heaven forbid you're actually finding yourself in a situation where you need to do it, but just in case we had mm-hmm. that boil water notice a yep. few years back. Remember that? So many families called me and were like, my kids showed me how to like boil water, do this, do that. Like all these different methods and mom, we need to do this. And they felt so thankful that their kids were on board with all these skills. So mm-hmm. do y'all have any organization that y'all have collaborated with? And is that, would that even be a thing that you would go to? Yeah. Um, you definitely, we've had scout groups and, and so on do that sort of thing in the past. Families in Nature has done some of that. Um, and definitely, like, if that's something that that folks are interested in, happy to, to share those resources along yeah. as well. I think I've always just been hesitant because I've been shut down by so many other places. Like, mm-hmm. REI was like, what? No. You know, Knowles was like, absolutely not. Like, mm-hmm. all these places just kept telling me no. And I was like, man, those are big organizations that... But I was like, hmm, TCIN, and I wonder if they've got anything like that. So I didn't see anything like that from perusing the website a lot. But I think it would be neat to throw 10 items in a backpack, jump in a canoe, and just go down the river and 
make a three-day venture and see all the problems that a group of kids would face along. We didn't have food. We didn't have this. It was rained on us. So, Because I've facilitated those experiences, and the kids just come back telling me that was the moment where my life changed for the better because I realized I don't have that many needs. Mm-hmm. And the... D- the resources to obtain said little needs is actually quite a bit out in the wilderness. Mm -hmm. And then they told me, but when I got back to the world, I felt like my wants were out of control Mm -hmm. and my resources to get those wants were very diminished. And Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, dude, that's powerful. So I want kids to have a sense of what are my needs? Like you said, shelter, water, fire, Mm -hmm. food, and how to meet those. So Mm -hmm. I would like to to partner with y'all in some way. Yeah, definitely. We um, are always looking for folks to do webinars. We're always, as I said, our request for session proposals is open now. Uh, so would love to hear from that in terms of um, our session proposals. Well, I'm going to write a session proposal. Um, did y'all, have y'all ever had, I can't write right now. Have y'all ever had anybody at the summit talk about any of these things before? Trying to remember. I'm sure we have. Um, I do not get to see any of the, I hate that I don't get to go to any of the concurrent oh, sessions. Oh, because you're so <laughs> on the back end organizing. Yeah. Yeah. And oh, so that makes every sense. Every year I see all these great proposals and I was like, I would like to go to all of them. I will go to none. <laughs> yeah. That's how I feel about when I organize like family stuff. I'm like on the back end. I'm like, I want to see them vic- vicariously experiencing the first fire, whatever they're yeah. doing. We nah. did have one proposed for 2020 that we Obviously, we didn't have our 2020 oh, conference. Yeah. COVID. Um, I keep forgetting about that. <laughs> yeah. And what we did do is we offered our folks, you know, to do a virtual. And that's actually how our webinars started is we had already accepted proposals uh, when we decided that we needed to cancel the conference. And so I emailed everyone and said, hey, we would love to have you do a webinar. And it, some did, some didn't. One that it just didn't make any sense to do it as a webinar was this guy was going to talk about carving your old canoe. Oh no! Yeah, and so that and it, they've never reproposed, cool. and so uh, but that was definitely one that we had accepted for our 2020 conference, and then it just didn't happen. Boy, that's a that's a feat of an endeavor. Yeah, to carve out on your own canoe. Mm-hmm. Um, are you familiar with Tom Elpel? Mm-mm. No, Tom Elpel. He wrote that book that all colleges use now for intro to bot- uh, botany. He wrote Botany Today. It's okay, like a yeah. huge college book. Well, he um, partnered with the great grandson of one of Lewis and Clark and they built a canoe like you said hand carved wooden canoe and then they followed the path of Lewis and Clark on this expedition but he has a video of him building this canoe and it's like probably a thousand hours but it's all sped up mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like carving a canoe in a webinar oh yeah. boy unless yeah. you're I don't know how he would do it but mm-hmm. they took a tree and just all the way down to a canoe mm-hmm. and I couldn't believe that so Kind of cool for those of you listening. You want to see somebody build a hand wooden canoe, um, and so what are some of your biggest struggles? So, correct me if I'm wrong, but <clears throat> the whole goal was to help provide families equitable access to the outdoors, mm-hmm. right? And what in, within that realm? What's the biggest struggles of helping facilitate all that? Well, that's a big question. Yeah, sorry. Um, Let's break it down into sections, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> Um, so we, maybe if I kind of go by some of our biggest programs, maybe that'll kind, yeah. of, kind of help. So one of our big initiatives is called Olay, Texas. 
Um, and it is an initiative uh, out of Department of State Health Services uh, where we are looking at outdoor learning spaces for early childhood. So really looking at uh, early childhood centers, how are we getting kids outside? And that really was built out of a health perspective because we were seeing that one in five kids in Texas were considered obese. And so what, how could we make an impact on that? Um, and the idea of a nature play space actually has kids more active naturally than like a, a plastic playground. Like the studies show that they're just active more in that nature space. Part of it's because it's, um, everything's always new. There's always something to explore, always something. They have to think a lot more um, about how their body's moving mm-hmm. in those spaces. And they do with a plastic playground that they've kind of played on for years. Their muscles learn. They get muscle memory versus a nature playground. They're having to think and be active a little bit more. I never thought about that before, about how the playscape alters and so therefore your body alters. That was mm-hmm. that was brilliantly said. Uh, and so um, that that's how that started. And for that, one of our, our biggest challenges is, is the building construction itself. A lot of our early childhood centers are privately owned. Uh, they're not owned by the city. They're not owned by ISDs. They're private private folks. Uh, that are running these early childhood centers, and they want the best for those kids. They are also in an industry that is running on a shoestring. Um, and this is, you know, it's, it's a challenge of all across the country. Um, and so they just don't have the funding to maybe spend $20,000 to totally redo their outside space, uh, when they would probably also have to be shut down during that time too because they're, they're a construction zone. Right. Uh, so it's not safe to have kids out in a construction mm-hmm. zone, <laughs> um, <laughs> especially two-year-olds. Right. <laughs> um, and so um, so for that, funding is a huge, huge barrier. Um, we're also seeing for that and then also our initiative of Green Schoolyards, which is working with our ISD phone friends and our private school friends that are, you know, that kindergarten through 12th grade age um, to green their schoolyards. Another big challenge is, is twofold. One, it's, I guess maybe it's threefold. One is that we are now at a point where the teachers weren't spending as much time outside when they were students, so they don't have that comfort oh, outdoors. Wow. That, like, that they just don't feel comfortable. And so we're working with teachers to, to gain that confidence and that comfort outdoors when they're taking the kids outside because the kids take the cues from the teachers. Maybe it's not a verbal cue, but it's they're seeing if they're te- they can see if their teachers aren't comfortable and they think, oh, maybe I shouldn't be comfortable. So there's those cues. We're also seeing um, a lack of just time during the school day. Uh, our school day is just so structured. Every minute is accounted for for learning, which makes sense. It's we want our kids to be learning when they're at school. Um, but it just means it's a little harder to get kids outside during the day. So what we're doing with that is really working with teachers, like let's take the lessons you're already doing. How can we shift that to outdoor space instead of indoor space? So we're not adding more things to their day. They already Teachers already have too much that they're trying to fit into a short, short day. So we don't want to add things to them. And then we're seeing over the last few years – just really an emphasis on with school hardening and it being harder to get kids outside from a school safety perspective. And so that's been something that we've really been thinking about over the last few years is how do we make sure 
we're addressing all the school safety needs and making sure our kids are safe in an environment, but also getting them outside where it's not as controlled as inside the classroom. And so <clears throat> when you say the the lack of safety thing, what mm-hmm. in what regard? Um, I mean, there's still some of the like snakes, bees, ants. Ah, but okay. we're thinking more like natural hazards. That that is part of it, but that's not actually what we're seeing. Got it. We're seeing in terms of school shootings. Ah, okay, that's what I was curious about. Yeah, okay. um, I just wanted. Sorry, people on campus that maybe. Yeah. Um, you don't want on campus when kids right. are on school grounds. A lot of times, especially like. Uh, we have schools that have an agreement with the city that, you know, their school is a park after school hours. But that means there's just an added layer of, well, is it a park? Is it during a school the during the day? Right, yeah. So there's just some safety issues about that. Interesting. Um, also, like, you know, sometimes there's activities going on in parks that you don't necessarily want kids to be exposed to. Oh, agreed. And so thinking about that in those outdoor spaces as well and, so really making sure teachers feel heard, that administrators feel heard. It's like these are challenges that we have when we're taking kids outside. And then also thinking, through, okay, how can we address that? How can we help our schools address these challenges that they're they're facing? Yeah. Man, I never thought about some of those things that you brought up as far as the access goes. Because, again, I guess we're, you know, here in Austin, we, we have kind of like a, a city within a park, if you will. Mm-hmm. Right. So everywhere we go is just, it's just nature. But at the same time, you know, we, yeah, I've, I've been mindful about those things on the East side. Have you ever heard of, um, ecology action? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. They are, oh boy. I don't know. Eric, am I allowed to say this? Uh, what, I might cut it out if I, if I can't say it, I'll call them later, but they're starting a weekend organization to get kids outside and they're looking for partners and funding and all that different stuff. I think they actually just got one from Texas Parks and Wildlife. But um, yeah, I want to put the two of y'all together because I think some of... Yeah, Eric is one of our partners. Oh, well, never mind. (laughs) Uh, They actually did one of our Wednesday field trips this last year we were in Austin. Oh, good. Yeah, and so they partnered with Austin Youth River Watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. did a tree planting workshop. Yes, okay, never mind. (laughs) Well, he's doing something new this year and he's looking for all the help he can get. And so Natureversity is actually doing his um, teacher trainings. Okay, great. So we're teaching all his new staff who are coming on to help facilitate these outdoor things with kids. But, um, yeah, well, I have really enjoyed chatting with you. And is there anything else that you would like to share with us as far as, oh, you know what I always ask our guests is, do you have any weird, fun nature facts you'd like to share? So when you (laughs) sent the questions over, this is the one that made me panic the most because I went blank. Oh, I was like, I know nothing about nature. I know no facts. And so this morning I put on my Instagram stories and I was like, okay, nature friends, send me your facts. Yay. And oh, that's so, you did that for us. <laughs> yes, that's I adorable. Did. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so one I got right before I came over is from my friend, Sarah, who actually I met in our Coastal Bend Regional Collaborative down in, in Corpus. She runs a nature center down there. And her nature fact, fun nature fact, is that armadillos always have identical quadruplets. That is correct. There you go. Every single time. Mm-hmm. That boggles my mind have you ever gotten to see little baby armadillos I have, and they're adorable they are like the rubberiest little i don't know what that it, it, you, you see a big armadillo and you're like oh that's like a hard shell you can probably bounce a 22 bullet off that thing or something but when they're there's babies they're like a gelatinous 
<laughs> so this last winter in February, I was at a conference uh, that we had an event at um, a zoo. And so they were raffling off as part of the um, conference as a fundraiser, uh, a, an animal encounter experience with the oh, zoo staff. Oh, cute. And it was an armadillo. Uh, and so I got to interact with a three-banded armadillo. So I got to actually touch one for like the first time. Uh, because when they're out in the wild, I leave them to their space and sure. I let them do their thing. I may creepily watch and video them, but I let them do their thing. <laughs> I do that too. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> they are a lot softer than I was anticipating. Like it's like a soft leather mm-hmm. and it, it was, I was not anticipating cause you do see them and you think, oh, they're scaly and right. they're rough and they're not. They're not. Yeah. It's like a rubbery leather. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah. Um, we were just, I was just walking along one time and I just kept hearing this tiny like, chick, 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 and I was like, man, it's, those are either toey birds mm-hmm. down on the ground from mm-hmm. where I'm at in this place, or there's something like baby moving around mm-hmm. over there. And I sure enough, it was four little baby armadillos. Mm-hmm. And I just put my camera on the side of this log and just like let it sit there. And they just walked around the camera for probably about five mm-hmm. minutes. And I got some of the best yeah. footage of those little babies. And then all of a sudden, it was like this noise and they all went right back in like single file line mm-hmm. down into the little thing. And then a biker came by and I was like, whoa, I was like, that was so cool that they all knew. Um, yeah. One of my favorite <laughs> things about this work is sometimes in meetings I get the, the oddest stories, which was one that this reminds me of is uh, one of our partners up at the Fort Worth Botanic Garden. She was running late to a meeting and she came on and she was all flustered onto the Zoom and she goes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And she was like, there was an armadillo. I chased it. I wanted to know where it went. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. that was probably the only meeting that that is a valid excuse. <laughs> it's so true. And that, and I, anytime my staff tell me things like that, they're like, man, there was this, this turtle in the road. And I was like, okay, it's fine. Like, oh, I had to stop and film this roadrunner. It looked like it was courting this female. It was like smashing this lizard around or something. I was like, that sounds like a courting pair of roadrunners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I always let them slide on those moments too. Um, well, where can we follow uh, TCINN and how can we get a hold of you if we're interested in partnering? Yeah, so our probably our most active social media is our Instagram, sure. which is Texas Children underscore in nature. Um, and so we post on there pretty regularly. One of the things that we do is a family nature walk prompt every morning. So this morning's was actually to find something fuzzy. So go out and, and as a family on your nature walk this evening, because uh, sometimes it's a lot easier to get those kids out if you give them a task. Oh, yeah. Um, so as opposed to just like, we're just going to walk. And they're like, but why? <laughs> uh, so we answer that but why question. Uh, so we put some nature walk prompts uh, up in the morning. So that's one thing we do. We also put photos of our partners doing stuff um, on our on our social media. So our Instagram is probably our most um, active. We also have a LinkedIn where we share when we are getting uh, new research is coming out. We share a lot of that through our LinkedIn. And then also um, on our YouTube, we put all of our webinars up on our YouTube. So you're always free to go watch any of those resources that we've produced in the past as well. Um, And then we have a Facebook page. Uh, So those are probably our most active social medias. Um, Our our website is texaschildreninnature.org. So Always, that's a great place to look and see, especially for our summit coming up. That's where we're going to have the most up-to-date data. Um, and then to become a partner, it, the, all that's on our website. You can click a button and become a partner through the website. And we would we would love to have folks join us. Yeah, because we all need 
like Sarah said, shelter, water, fire, food. Those are that's actually what the Nature University logo is. Oh, nice. Shelter, water, fire, food. Mm-hmm. It's the, the the that painting's a little off because the leaf is blue and the feather is green, but that is a feather on the right. Okay. And then the inside the fire is the water droplet. Okay. So my teacher was Tom Brown, and he always told me that's the sacred four: shelter, mm-hmm. water, fire, food. And then I wanted something to do with the elements, you know, earth, mm-hmm. water, wind, fire. And um, that's why that logo's like that. We all need it, y'all, no matter what. Because humans cannot live in parking lots. I challenge each and every one of you who want to prove me wrong on that, go do it. And then come on this podcast and tell me how miserable it was. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah, thanks so much for being on. Um, I would love to have you on again in in a year or so, so you can catch us up on what next is coming up at these summits, because I know a lot of people are going to be calling and and heading your way now that they've listened to this. Definitely. Thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.